Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's uh, In The Know podcast, where I'm delighted to be joined by the one and only Gillian Hepburn, Commercial Director of uh, Benchmark. Welcome, Gillian. Good to see you. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. I think the last time we spoke, we were talking about artificial intelligence All right, and yeah. whether it would terminate financial planning, but it looks like we're still here, so it hasn't right, happened yet. But I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah, we will. Oh, really? Okay. Right. Well, I'll hold you to that. We'll have a um, b- b- bit more of a conversation. Um, sure. The reason I wanted you to come on the, the podcast is because you recently launched the advisor survey, which I uh, had a copy of read. It was in the paper as well. And there's some interesting yeah, yeah. trends. Yeah. So as this pos- podcast is called In the Know, yeah, then yeah. ideally I want somebody in the know to tell me what's, what's going on. Um, but before we dive into that, um, I just want to find out a bit more about you, Gillian, because I've spoken a number of times and every guest that I've had on the podcast, I tend to ask them how they sort of ended up in financial services. And so sure. far, it's all by accident. No one's really um, wanted to come into it. So um, how did you get into financial services? Was it by design? Was it by uh, accident? No, it was by accident. But actually, it's a really good point, isn't it? Why do people not come in by design? You know, and I think that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, no, sadly... Um, I was by accident. I was doing a an English degree um, at University at Aberdeen. Thought I was going to be a teacher. I spent a week back in my old school and decided after that that wasn't really for me. Uh, and my neighbour at the time, fortunately, was in Standard Life in HR. And I said, are there any summer jobs? Because I might need to change my plans on a career. Um, he said, I can't guarantee it, but I'll put your CV to the top of the pile so they'll speak to you. So I did two summers as a temp in standard life, literally stamping mail, uh, filing, photocopying. It was many years ago. Um, <laughs> and thought, this is not actually as bad as I thought it might be. I always had this thing about, I don't want to work in an office, but actually it, it, it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be like. There was lots of young people and it was great fun as well. And um, they then launched a graduate scheme. And that was the first year when I graduated. It was the first year that Standard Life had a scheme, which was not just for actuaries. Um, and I joined that. Yeah, interesting. I joined the scheme. Um, and again, interesting, they, they decided to start small. There was four of us, all women, um, which again, interesting. If you think back to the late 80s and uh, and that's really how I got into the industry. And I spent you know, two years doing the rounds into various departments and then you know, my career moved in a number of different directions after that but that's literally how I got into the industry. Excellent. Was it um, when your career moved around was it planned at all or was it just a case of opportunities just presented themselves and you just work your a way? A great question James because a, a lot of it was just opportunities and people often say to me you know what, what you know they ask me about advice and stuff in terms of the industry and I, I think one of the key things now is careers don't always go in straight lines right so it's not about staying in the same place and just trying to get a more senior position. Um, I just took every opportunity that came in my direction, which is why I ended up working you know, for a number of years in customer service division. And laterally, they are managing some large departments. I did some IT work when they were bringing in, you know, what was uh, cutting edge technology in terms of image and workflow. I then, you know, spent some time in marketing, and then I ended up in distribution, where it's sort of the last role I had was launching their platform to the UK market. And then I was BDM for a number of years. So so for me, it was just about taking every opportunity that, that came in my direction. And Because you never know how they're going to end up. And mm. it just gave me a really broad spread of knowledge and experience. Yeah, you've experienced the ecosystem of financial services in I different parts. Have indeed. And then obviously I moved after that. I, you know, I always thought, to be fair, I'd, be, I'd do my 40 years, get my nice two-thirds final salary, and that would be me done. Um, but I got an opportunity to leave the business. I wasn't, in, I wasn't particularly unhappy, but um, I left the business to work for a small discretionary fund manager. Um, it was probably too big a change from a large corporate to a very small business. Um, and then I consulted for a number of years across the industry, working with advisors, asset managers, literally, to be fair, doing, any, doing anything that anybody would pay me for. Um, and that's where I really learned a lot about the industry and made a huge number of contacts and built a network um, and then I built an online business and sold that into um, Embark at the time moved with it and then a few years later Shoulders came knocking on the door so, um, so I've been really you know fortunate but I think part of it is 
at times being brave enough to do things, you know. So, you know, giving up a job and sticking a CV out and saying, I am now a consultant was, if I look back, um, it was quite a brave thing to do at that at that point. But, um, you know, it was, it was a really interesting time in my life as well. It's a, it's a ballsy move, I have to say. Uh, it, it was. <laughs> oh, credit to and, you. You know, I, I learned loads other than the biggest lesson was you don't, you know, you spend an awful lot of time with your accountant and all sorts of things rather than actually doing what you love. And um, and there's this whole feast and famine piece about um, cash flow and managing a business and learning about how all of that works. And uh, and I think often that's why I do have an affinity with a lot of advisor businesses because, you know, a number of them are, are still relatively small businesses. Mm. I know cash flow is king, isn't it? You're always balancing the books. And uh, and I think having you know launched a business, well, two businesses actually, um, you, you really learn what it's like to be a small business owner. Yeah, and it's and it's not easy. No, it's not. Thank you. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly difficult, but it's also yeah, thoroughly rewarding. Yes, and but particularly as well. I mean, I didn't ever move to the point of taking on staff, but you know that's quite a worry as well. You know, you're you are effectively responsible for making sure that other people can pay their mortgages. You know, and yes. and and that's you know that's that can be really stressful. Do you, Do you think that affinity of uh, or experience of running a small business allows you to be? I guess we're a little bit more authentic with advisors because you've been there, you know yeah, how absolutely. it works, you, you, you get it. Yeah. You're not just from a big company. You experience no, the highs and lows and, 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 and the issues that are contained yeah, within totally. that. And, and, and also, yeah, absolutely. And, and also one of the learns, particularly when you're consulting, is I think what you forget is you're actually selling yourself all the time. You know, that, that's what you, yes, you're doing projects for advisors as I was. I was doing a lot of work, for example, in terms of platform due diligence and centralised investment propositions. But essentially, you've got to keep yourself out in the market. You're always trying to find new clients whilst you're servicing your existing clients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's very much what advisors have to do. Um, so, so yeah, I, I do think that helped me really understand, you know, some of the, some of the challenges that they face. Okay. And and now Benchmark, you're with Benchmark Commercial Director. Yeah. Just tell me a bit more about Benchmark, what they offer. Yeah, so, yeah, um, so I joined Schroeder's five years ago and I moved, um, so that was to launch our investment solutions business. And then I moved onto the board about two and a half years ago, um, onto the Benchmark board. So so I haven't moved across that business kind of blind, if that makes sense. Um, so Benchmark is essentially the you know the financial planning business. Uh, within um, within Shoulders, and that's not to confuse it with Shoulders Personal Wealth, which is a joint venture with Lloyds Banking Group. So Benchmark um, was fully acquired, I think, back in 2021. Um, we have a network of advisors. Uh, we have an advice business, and the advice business is nationally based. They are they're actually one of the appointed reps of the network. We also have our own platform. Um, and then we use the investment solutions from Shoulders. Although the platform and the net, you know, the network is independent. The platform is whole of market, so um, so kind of a broad, a broad business actually, and uh, right in the sweet spot, I think, particularly in terms of some of the services that we offer, um, and also, you know, many advi- advisors, as you know, James, are looking for exit, you know, exit strategies and plans, and. Um, we do acquire businesses. Um, the interestingly, many of them will join the network first. You know, they'll they'll learn they'll learn a bit more about us as a business. And um, we're also seeing people joining networks for all sorts of reasons at the moment. You know, compliance, and we can come on to that in terms of the mm. advisor survey. But um, so you know, many of them come through the network. They work with us. They they learn to understand how we operate as a business and, and actually about our culture as well. Um, and many of them will have a longer term aspiration to be acquired. Um, and once they go through that process, they will end up in the benchmark financial planning business. Okay, so there's a whole range of services being offered then. Absolutely. And it's working yeah, yeah. with the advisor community. It, it totally is. And, you know, one of the things that's really important to me is that overall proposition. So what do advisors need and want from us? Um, you know, in terms of things like you know, mortgage and protection panels, for example. But, and again, we'll come on to talk about AI, but, you know, what can we be delivering to make their businesses more efficient and then more valuable? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So with regards to the advisor needs and wants, obviously mm. the one thing that you've done recently is the uh, the report. Um, yeah. 
Absolutely. Which I which I read with interest. Um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, when you were when you were compiling it, did it sort of match the the mood music that you were hearing anyway, in terms of the results that you saw, and actually what you're seeing in terms of yeah. you know when you're um, on the ground, as it were? Did it sort of match your expectations? Yeah, a really good question because you know we we run the survey every year. And then in COVID, we launched a, what we called a pulse survey to take the temperature check. How are advisors feeling in lockdown, not being able to engage face to face with people? Was it hard to find new clients? All of that stuff. So um, so the advisor survey, the, the main survey, so the one that we're talking about, um, runs every November. And, um, and this year will actually be the 10th year. So we've got a lot of data going back. And um, and for me, it's always about two things. Uh, it's all it's often about just confirming what you thought anyway. So back to that question: how much of it is just confirmation that we know enough about the market, we've got our finger on the pulse, and we absolutely understand some of the problems and challenges of advisors. And then sometimes you'll get um, what I often call the kind of aha moments that oh that that's not what I expected, and and that's. Equally as, well, sometimes you could argue more interesting, isn't it? Um, but in the main, yes, it probably reflects. If we're close enough to our clients, then it actually should reflect what they're what they're thinking and what they're saying to us. But I think what's useful in terms of the survey is it, is it quantifies it for us. Yeah. You know, we knew, I mean, we can dive into it, but the, you know, a great example is the questions about cash as against long-term investing. You know, people are sitting there looking at, fixed one-year cash rates of, you know, in excess of five, five and a half, six percent. So why would I put money into risk assets? Why would I put money in the market when I can when I can get this? And, you know, we spent a lot of time last year. We we knew these conversations were happening, but the fact that, you know, 95% of advisors told us that we are having these kind of conversations with clients. You know, what we did last year is a lot of work in terms of helping understand, helping advisors to have the conversations with our clients about the benefits of long-term investing as opposed to taking that short-term view on, on the cash rates. So for us, it, it, it delivers us a lot of intelligence, but it also then helps us think about how we can support advisors. So for me, you know, we knew it was happening, but getting the numbers was really helpful because we probably, well, maybe we did realise the scale, but I always say you know, if you can quantify it, it just it's, it's just far more important. Yeah, it helps, sets the tone and allows yeah, you to plan absolutely. as well and just to give, you know, of course it does. Yeah. You know, help and support the advisors and when that, they need it. And that's key for us. You know, and it's interesting because when I joined five years ago, I was told uh, one of my first roles, as you know, I do a lot of work with, with the press, for example, and speak at conferences. And I was told, um, here's the advisor survey. It's all been completed um, and you need to do the, the, the we usually do a launch, so maybe a, a breakfast or a dinner. And I looked at it and I thought, well, it's, it's interesting, but some of the questions aren't hugely relevant in my in my opinion. So we were asking things like, um, what um, what risk profiling tool do you use now? I could have probably made an educated guess on on what they were and in roughly in what order, but is that really telling us something? I don't mean yes, of course it's important what tool they're using, but for me there were other more interesting things that we should have been asking. Um, and quite frankly, if you're using the survey also in terms of some of our PR activity, um, that doesn't give you a headline that X amount of advisors are using Y risk tool. You know, there's plenty of other surveys out there that do that kind of detailed research, particularly when they're focusing, for example, um, on, on technology. So, um, so we spent quite a bit of time just reshaping some of that and looking at what are the questions that give us um, significant trends that we absolutely don't want to lose and we run those questions year on year and then we spend a lot of time every time we do the survey saying what's happening in the market um, and what do we want to find out more about I mean clearly things like the consumer duty questions started to go in last year and um, so it's always a case of taking taking some questions out that don't feel so relevant and then putting new ones in because one of the things for me is we, we can't make the survey too long because people won't answer it or they'll get bored halfway through and they'll just tick the boxes. You know, we, we all behave like that. Um, mm. So it's about keeping it tight and keeping it kind of relevant and um, and making sure, therefore, that advisors want to give us information, but it's not taking you know hours of their time and massive amounts of detail. Yeah, because you get reader fatigue and they won't complete it. Oh. 
Uh, ab- absolutely. And the other thing people say is, can you give us lots of detail about the advisors that complete it? I'm like, do you know what? I can't because we these advisors don't necessarily use um, Schroders in any way, shape or form. Um, they just they, they are on our database. So at some point we've engaged with them. Um, but it doesn't mean to say they're active holders of shoulder funds or that they work with us through Benchmark and using our one of our many services. It's a broad reach across the market. And we don't ask them lots of details about their business um, and who they are. Because the last thing I want is an advisor thinking that I'm just going to use this as a marketing tool. It's absolutely not. You know, We're not going to start to send them lots of information about various products. That's not That's not the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really, you know, every year people say, why don't you ask more about their businesses? We've got other ways of engaging with advisors on the detail. Um, so it's it's about, you know, it's, it's just answer the questions and help us out. Yeah, we do a, an advisor survey on salary uh, and benefits every mm-hmm. year. This is in, yeah. in its 12th year, we're just doing the question. Uh, the questionnaire has just been issued. We get yeah. between five to 650 people completing okay, it. And it gives yeah. us a broad data range, but it's the most yeah. downloaded um, insight report that we do because people are interested yeah. in terms of benchmarking. Absolutely. Um, but the strength of the questions really does... Uh, it helps the the responses that you get and i think over Absolutely. the years we keep refining because we want mm-hmm. it to be a really useful and data-led not just giving yeah. wide bandings but what's it like in the northeast compared to the southeast you know yeah. what what do advisors Absolutely. feel about the the economy the political state we try and get a a, a real sense of what's happening um, so we've been doing it for 12 years and it, it, as I say, it's one of the most interesting piece, pieces of research that we do, which advisors and firms like. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, But the it's strength of questions are so important. It, the questions are really important, but also it's um, how we want them to answer. So if we're doing multiple choice questions, how do we create the, the responses that give us sensible data so we do spend um you know i work out backwards from when do we end up want to announce this to the press working back in terms of at what point do we need to have the questions when does the survey you'll be the same when does it go out what does it look like but it's it's interesting there's a, probably a lot more work and thoughts going into it than than people would imagine and you probably you'll, you'll probably agree with that one um, yeah, because not, do, does it match? Do the trends match what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. Are we talking about the right things? Yeah. Yeah. yeah really so, so, talking of questions, then. So, um, and the advisor survey. Just, just going into yeah. that now. I, I noticed that um, if we look at advisor challenges, the business challenges that they're going through. Forty-nine yeah. percent of advisors cited regulation as their main concern. I think that's been an uptick. Is this directly to do with consumer duty or is there something else lurking in the background? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and and that's another inherent question on the survey is what we don't do necessarily is dig really deep. Um, because actually part of it for me is about then having the debate. Um, we had our annual conference yesterday and, uh, and we use the survey almost all the way through the conference because what it does is it shapes the sessions that we run. Um, but but yeah, it's um, in terms of sorry, now I've forgotten the question again because I went off on one. I went off on no. tangent. But <laughs> what were you asking? Consumer duty, the regulation. Oh, yeah, regulation yeah. yeah, yeah. So so we use the survey in all in all sorts of places, um, and we don't always dig deep. But regulation, time and time again, comes out as as the number one challenge. And I think to 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 answer your question, um, if you look back to twenty twenty three, there was just, I guess it felt like one thing after another, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, consumer duty clearly the big one, and as you know, we put some questions on that. That was, I think, clearly front and centre of, of people's minds at that point. But also, um, there was a you know a, a plethora of dear CEO letters on a whole range of topics. We had SDR coming in right at the end of the year in terms of product labelling. We had the retirement income review, which we're still to see the outcome of that. So I think advisors just felt that there was that there's so much going on. But but you're right. Um it's it's always number one. But what we've seen is a rise in the, you know, the scale of where that's at in relation to some of the other challenges and problems. So it's probably no big surprise. And we, we did debate this actually at the conference yesterday and that, that came through that advisors were like, it's, it's just there's so much going on that we're trying to cope with in addition mm. to you know, run the business. 
yeah, dealing with cash flow and uh, all sorts. Find yeah, if I, like, uh, just running the business. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and with regards to regulation and consumer duty, it's been in the press that you know the likes of St James's Place have had to to change things, probably because yeah. of the consumer duty. Yeah. Do you think that's now starting to bite in terms of the reality that this is uh, a piece of regulation that has got some teeth? Because when yeah. I did a podcast probably about six to eight months ago, it was a case of um, it's important. And the, the people on the podcast were saying it's important, but I sort of felt like, mm, is it going to have the teeth? Is it going to change what it's really wanting to yeah. change? But it sounds like that's starting to happen and maybe feeding down in terms of people taking this more seriously. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, back to the survey, I'm just checking my numbers here. You know, back in, so we asked in our May, so our little pulse survey, how advisors were feeling about consumer duty and, I know, to what you know, what impact did they think it would have on their business? And to be fair, um, just checking my numbers, about thirty nine percent of them said pretty much very little impact or no or no impact at all, right? And and what we saw between May, which was pre implementation date, to November, is a complete turnaround. This was probably one of my aha moments that I talked about earlier, and um, that suddenly we've seen this complete shift in advisor sentiment towards consumer duty. So we're now seeing that, you know, 30, 41% of them are saying, actually, this is having an impact on my business. So mm-hmm. I think this is just taking time, isn't it, to work through the system for people to really understand what it means for them and and what they have to think about in terms of that not just getting to launch, but what's next. You know, implementation date was, was fine. We got there. But this is an ongoing process. This is absolutely evolution, not revolution. And I think the survey really, for me, that complete flip um, really demonstrated that. And then we asked them, you know, the follow-up question So uh, on this one was, what are you specifically going to focus on in 2024? You know, what's the most important part here? And the key priority was continuing to check their ongoing assessment of value and using client feedback. And and I think that's an interesting one because we're mm. now into the practicalities of, well, how do we measure value and how do we actually ask clients? So I think that old, you know, clients don't leave me, therefore they're getting value is, is not the answer here. And at Benchmark, actually, we've done a lot of work with the advisors. So we did a, a really interesting piece of work with Holly Mackay at Boring Money where we went right out to end consumers and asked them about what do they value with their, from their advisors and there was 27 different factors and we boiled that down to five key areas and we've now built a question a robust questionnaire that can test these factors and advisors are using that after every client review to measure the sentiment on these factors so what we've tried to do because you know value and um, we heard all of last year well it's really difficult to measure it you know it means different mm. things to different people it's quite intangible well, we could argue that, but actually what we're being asked to do is put some rigour and process around that. So so what we're now doing is just rolling out from that pilot um, the questionnaire. We're already, we're seeing examples of, you know, advisors looking back on client feedback and identifying, you know, in the main clients are happy, that's great, but there's an, there's an outlier here. Who is he and why are they saying that? We've got great examples of advising contacting clients that they thought were happy and I mean, told, well, you know, I'm, I'm happy about this, but, you know, in these areas, I was a bit confused. Often it's actually about back to that um, client understanding piece. So Mm. what advisors are now doing is able to take that feedback on board um, and and look at it in in the context of a number of different factors of consumer duty. So this is just going to take time, isn't it? I think when you're talking about the perception of value, I think, goes back to our previous point about the strength of the questions that you're asking to try and get that Absolutely. data to, to, to be to be able to really understand what's what's important to the client. So, yeah. and and do advisors is there is there like um like do they share best practice? Because sometimes it's almost like there's a little bit of unknown here. So, is there a, a readily available sharing of information in terms of this is what some advisors are doing over here to give other advisors? some yeah, kind well, of guidance in terms of what to do i mean certainly in the network we have that opportunity don't we you know we engage with advisors on a, on a daily basis um uh, we run quarterly meetings we're always happy to run webinars get advisors on board and um, engage 
and and also it's about you know the people that work with you know within my area who are out meeting advisors day in day out. You know if we can share best practice around amongst our own team of the you know, partnership directors and service managers that we have, and when they're out with with you know speaking to their clients, they can talk about good practice that they're seeing. So I think there's a number of different ways that you know best practice is being shared. I mean, obviously before I moved, um, one of the things I had to do was fair value assessments and target market for the investment solutions business for our model portfolios. And again, what I found was the industry were were really happy to share best practice. You know, one of the first things I'm sure we all did when the fair value assessments were um, were published was look at what everybody else had done well that you know that's an interesting way of calculating it that's an interesting way of presenting it so i think and we'll possibly also maybe get to a standardized approach certainly on fair value assessments for products similar to what we reached with the assessments of value slightly different mm-hmm. but similar mm-hmm. um, in the fund in the fund industry because they've had you know they were three years ahead of the game in this one in terms of having to assess value so uh, so there were some principles certainly here at Shoulders we were able to use on the back of the um, the fund assessments and think about that in the context of how we were then going to use um, use that information for the model portfolios. And I think advisors will be the same. It's um, how can we come together to share best practice? And it'll also be interesting won't it, to see what the regulator will do when they start to do some thematic reviews on this, which we would anticipate. You know, mm. can, can we get examples of, of good and poor practice? And there's a lot of engagement, isn't there, with the regulator on, on all of this. So, um, you know, we are only in year one, aren't we? So I think, um, I think the next few years we'll see a, a refinement of some of this. Lots, lots to do. And when, yeah, you, when, absolutely. You, when you talk about sharing best practice, when it when you sort of move that conversation into fees and charging, is is there a, a downward pressure to change the, the the fee structure? You know, whether to increase or decrease, because that's the one thing. If you start talking about fees, it can be quite inflammatory, and that's the yeah. one thing you see on the, in the press. It's like, well, you charge that, I wouldn't charge that. But again, sharing that best practice, looking at fees, yeah. is the pressure starting to build a little bit? <laughs> Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the survey I thought was quite interesting on mm. this one. You know, many advisors said um, that they felt it was an increased pressure on charges. But when you actually looked at what they were charging, particularly if I recall, it was between 0.5 and 0.75, the number of advisors um, charging at that level had shot up, right? Mm. And it was at the expense of those charging up to 0.5% had dropped significantly. So it kind of felt like they're telling me one thing, but the numbers are suggesting something different. So it was suggesting that they felt a pressure, yet the fees had increased. Mm. So was a whole, that was a really interesting debate. Um, that was I, my aha moment. That, that was like, was like okay, that, okay. Well, yeah. You say one thing and you're doing something, or it feels like something else is happening. And then the other area where we asked under the consumer duty piece um, was about... Um, did they think as a result of consumer duty that the ongoing charging structure was under pressure? And there was quite a number of advisors there. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but they said, mm. yes, we do feel that that model is under pressure. And and to be fair, if you look at some of the the language that's coming out of the regulator, it, it does feel like that ongoing model is under a bit of pressure. I think at one point, didn't they, they said that you know, about 90% of clients were put in ongoing fee structures and they weren't convinced that everybody really required that. Mm. So, and, and I think we'll see new fee models emerging, to be honest, particularly as we start to think about wealth transfer to the next generation, where you know, maybe they're in early accumulation. I'm quite happy to pay subscription models we're seeing coming in. One-off fees has got to be again on the radar. So I think it'll be interesting. But I think... The ongoing charging one, um, advisors were definitely saying to us in the survey, yeah, we, we're a bit, we, we feel that model is, is you know, under under some threat. Mm-hmm. I, I actually think, though, if I could call it, there's a, you know, there is a bit of a case for the defence here, to be fair. You know, um, if you think about some of the challenges that we've had over the last year, particularly in the investment market, if you are charging on a one-off basis, it assumes a client then knows pretty much when they need advice. What we saw, though, was, you know, through some of the investment, you know, ups and downs, you think about COVID, 
sadly, the Russia-Ukraine situation, now the Israel gas, things that have impacted volatility in the market, right? We see advisors absolutely on the front foot with clients, talking to them, holding their hands, and many, you know, making sure that they're staying invested or even understanding, as as the survey showed, the number of people that are struggling with the cost of living crisis and stopping things like pension contributions. Now, clearly people need, if if people need an income from somewhere, um, then then there are, you you have to look at the portfolio and see how are we going to create that for you. Now, an, an advisor that's with you every step of the way and delivering an ongoing service um, is going to be on top of that, in my view. So I think, I absolutely think that there is a place for you know, for ongoing advice. So, um, so I, again, I think that's an interesting one to think through. It, it is. And I think we are in, we are in constant perpetual crisis at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I can't see that changing. <laughs> Too soon. It's very difficult. It's very difficult times, you know, and we we see that in this survey as well, where we ask clients about how they were feeling about, or how did advisors think their clients were feeling about investments, and you know, we've we've seen a shift from bullish to bearish over the years, but it's you know, it's 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 still a challenging time in terms of client sentiment, I think, because they have experienced, have they, in the last few years, some extreme bouts of volatility. Yeah, yeah, it's been huge. It's been huge. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, th- there's a saying, and I, I can't really paraphrase it, but it's almost like, you know, in good times, you need good advice, but in a crisis, you need great advice. You know, yeah, and, that, and, that, and that's, that's yeah, when you really need that. your advisor to be with you because yeah. this is this is uncharted. We haven't seen this yeah. political or economic well, turmoil for, a, yeah. you know, a generations. Uh, absolutely right. And, and, and this year will be absolutely no exception. Um, you know, we've also got an election. Um, we've got a US election. Um, if you think about um, some figures we were showing yesterday at the conference about the number of government changes and elections globally over this year, it's, um, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, we are we are a, in a time of, of significant change. Yeah. And, um, and that's when you're absolutely right. You know, people want an advisor that they can trust. Yes. That, that, that helps them understand and navigate some of these challenges but also we've got that we still have the cost of living crisis where people need access to income and um, one of the reasons again we asked about that in the survey we, we started to ask about the cost of living crisis back in it was may 2022 when it was just beginning to come to the fore and we said let's ask advisors if they think clients will have to reshape portfolios and i think it was something like 63 percent of advisors said yes we think we'll have clients that will have to reshape Actually, we were then in the in the, in the great position because it's our survey of, of saying, and have they actually reshaped portfolios? Nice. And what's happened is the number of advisors that said clients have had to reshape portfolios is far in excess of those who thought that that might happen. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. But you know, and clearly the number one reason that they told us in the survey for doing that was you know simple you know household expenses, fuel bills, all all of that stuff that we're all struggling with. But number two has changed. Um, Back earlier in, in May, it was all about helping wider family, mm. um, and and that's that's shifted a little bit. Whether they're finished helping the wider family, we're focusing back on ourselves again. But again, that's where an advisor comes in. If you're helping the wider family, let's make sure that that's being done tax efficiently. Back to the value of advice. So um, so the cost of living crisis, you know, there there's is very much at the forefront of many people's minds, but it's where people need good advice in terms of how are we going to manage this. You know, the number of advisors that said people are stopping pension contributions, well, do they really understand the longer term impact of that? And are there other ways of releasing income for them? I honestly think it's a great time to be a financial advisor, notwithstanding oh, what we've talked about in terms of yeah. you know the, 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 the cost of regulation and the issues of running a yeah. business. People need good advice. It's yeah. as simple as that. And you need to have an advisor who's calm, is con- considered in their yeah. approach because we Absolutely. are reactionary. I see the I see the volatility yeah, yeah. and I'm like, right, okay, I can't do that, I can't do that. Yeah. You you need a strong hand to say, okay, let's work it through. Let's work it through logically and see absolutely. where we're going to end up. And yeah. it's those and, and conversations which are so important. They're absolutely right. And time and time again, you know, back to the work that we did with boring money, it's it's back to that trust and peace of mind. 
and I, I just want to be able to sleep at night knowing somebody's looking after my money. And it's so important. Yeah, it's peace of mind. You've mentioned a few a few things actually in terms of the advisors helping the wider family. This goes into the sort of wealth transfer. <laughs> yeah, and, and I remember when we did a podcast, I think it was Ian McKenna that mentioned it. Um, yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know what, he's got a really good point. And then it's it's one of those things. I've seen it once and it's I'm constantly bombarded by wealth transfer. So I read your report and it was interesting yeah, to yeah. see that again, I think the number was it's sixty-three percent advisors yeah, are concerned right. about the wealth transfer. About wealth transfer. But don't but appear to be doing but too much. Doing about it. So yeah. I'm concerned and not doing too much. But and again, yeah. I'm just interested to know why 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 is that? Why is that? Because from a, from an advisor's it's point of view, you're looking you're looking from a for a client, aren't you? You're looking about their long term, their longevity, and it's like an advisor. You should be looking at your business in terms of longevity as well. It's, it's exactly spot on in terms of the reason why we've spent a lot of time talking to advisors about that. About so it's, it's also about doing the right thing for for families, isn't it? But also for those advisors in particular, they're looking for you know, an exit strategy and succession planning and looking to maybe sell their business, why would you why would you damage the future valuation of the business by allowing allegedly 70% of people inheriting wealth not to use or is it 60% not to use the not to use your select against you. It just it doesn't seem it doesn't it doesn't seem logical for me to allow the assets that you spent a lot of time creating with clients or building up and protecting for it to walk out the door when it hits the next generation. Um, I, I think the two the two things I hear all the time is, um, you know, I don't have a proposition because actually, and, and maybe this leads into the AI discussion, um, you know, I, I, I need to be able to, re- to reduce the cost to serve for these, hate the term, but lower value clients as they're seen at the moment. But it's about protecting the existing assets. So I don't have a proposition that that that's scalable, um, and that and that targets those people. And you can see that, you know, I think at very it was about fourteen percent of advisors said they had a proposition, if I can recall. Mm. Um, but we don't really see it. The numbers don't stack up in terms of the number of advisors prepared to advise lower lower value clients. So what we deemed as less than fifty thousand pound, it was only twenty five percent of advisors. Um, and also, you know, coupled with that, I don't have a proposition and I won't make a profit from them. Now, you can kind of understand the logic, right? But um, but maybe it's about the broader picture. And this is where you kind of hope that technology and maybe some of the regulatory changes in terms of advice guidance boundaries. And I know, you know, we hear from advisors that that feels quite complicated and you know, we're still in early days of that. But But surely there must be a way to try and engage that next generation and to try and help here. However, as you probably are aware, the, the one trick that I still feel significant number of advisors are not are not picking up on is that this first point of transfer at the moment in the baby boomer generation, mm. I'm going to generalise, is from a husband to a wife, uh, who was typically, and again, I'm generalising, but if you think it through, obviously to people, think about your parents or your grandparents, is often a, was a non-earning spouse, who was quite frankly not engaged in the conversation. Um, and we know this because they told us, you know, so this is always the don't shoot the messenger moment. We did lots yeah. of research. We spoke to lots of women, particularly widows, who had left advisors and said, I, I just felt that they didn't really understand me. They didn't understand that I had specific needs of my own. Um, the conversation was all around the amount of assets, where it was invested and how it's grown. And she said, I'm sitting there thinking, I actually want to help my kids go on the property ladder. Um, I have a, a, a different views on what I think we should be doing with the money. Um, so 70% of these women you know, leave the family advisor. That's happening now. We did some research at the back end of last year, which can confirm those numbers. It wasn't quite the 70, 70% number, because that's been banded around the industry, to be fair, for a number of years. But our numbers said that you know, well over 30% of people or women, widows, will not use the family advisor. So it is it, it matches up. Um, they just wanted a safe space to talk about their view on finances. They felt like lacking in confidence and that the conversation wasn't really aligned to their requirements. What do you so, think the, the disconnect is, though, as in what's preventing an advisor from, from, from doing that? Because ultimately um, it's about looking at needs and wants and aspirations, etc. Um, it's, it's a really good question. I, I hear lots of reasons like the husband doesn't want 
the partner involved in the conversations. But I can't understand why. What? So are we saying that at the point of a widow's or of women's most vulnerability that they should be left not understanding anything about finances? I I just don't subscribe to that at all. Mm. Um, I think. I mean, interestingly, because we you know do a lot of sessions on this, and we say the the biggest thing is just understanding these women. And understanding that they want a different type of conversation. Um, so it's not, and, and again, actually, a really interesting point, James. Um, often advisors will say to me, well, is the answer to put a female advisor in my business? Mm-hmm. Now, there's a big challenge with that. Only 16% of advisors are female, so it's not enough to go around, right? But, yeah. but actually, when we did our own research, 76% of the women that we surveyed said, I don't really care. I don't really care, you know, whether my advisor is male or female. Um, I just want somebody that that gets me, that understands what I want to talk about, and um, and engages me in the right way, and somebody that I can trust. But just, you know, that that's right across the industry. That's what everybody is saying in terms of what they want from an advisor. So there's nothing new here. Mm-hmm. It's just about starting to think about that demographic, and obviously to advisors who do a bit of an audit in your client bank. So where are these? Where are these baby boomer couples? And ask yourself genuinely, are we engaging that female client? I, I, I had the, the pleasure of speaking at a conference in South Africa last year for Shoulders, and I met a couple of advisors. We were talking about the subject, and one of them said, I wished I'd heard you talk six months ago. He said, because um, two of my clients, big clients, um, they, they, they passed away, sadly. The money went to widows, and I said, I was sacked within a month. And interestingly, often driven by the next generation. Yeah. So my, my message is sadly, don't don't completely ignore the next generation. They often influence what that widow will do. So the advice is do an audit on your yeah, client portfolio. We, start to engage with point, the spouse yeah. and the next generation. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it, and, it, it and, sorry, Jane. And and be genuine, be honest when you're doing the analysis. Because I have a lot of advice. So, you know, when, when I sat down, I thought, you know what, we we don't really. No, we don't really. And and many of these women also said, I'm I'm quite happy to engage with the advisor on my own so that I can have a conversation about what about my needs. And my requirements mm. and how I feel about money. Because I think, again, the other question I had was related to wealth transfer, and it, and it was the 90% advisors don't have a different marketing strategy either. Correct. So, so it, it, it goes into the concern you're, you're about it. They right. don't have a, a strategy and they're not engaging, but it's it's happening. And that, that happening. story just then about that advisor has lost his and client. It, I mean, it's preventable. He said, I was in complete shock. He said, I just, he said, and I've done exactly what, I've gone right through my client bank and been really honest about, am I really engaging that wider family? But you're right. And it's a really interesting point. If only 10% have a strategy for, you know, in, for engaging and retaining these women, that's a massive threat to the business. But my goodness, what a fantastic opportunity for, for advisors then to hold themselves out as specialising in, in women. And particularly um, widowed and also divorced. Mm. It's market opportunity. It's there. But usually, usually. And as one advisor says to me, it's terrible, but treason. The one thing about rich widows is they, um, they lunch with others. They hang out together. <laughs> and he said, uh, I have a constant source of referrals. If you're, if you're suddenly seen as an expert in this area, what a great opportunity. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to know that the that the widows aren't looking for female only advisors. No, I, pr- I practically it, it was it, it's impossible. Yeah. And you know, running Absolutely. a recruitment business, tell me, I don't see any discrimination. I just see no. people just need good advisors. Um, so I think that's really interesting no, to know right. that um, that research that was, is yeah, quite good. I'm that. happy to share that yeah. research with anybody who wants it. Um, but that was another. Obviously, it was a slightly different survey to our main one, but because I wanted to dig into it in a bit more detail, but. I'll be totally honest, that was another aha moment because advisors had often said when I was presenting it to this, uh, about this at conferences, is the answer of female advisors? Well, I, personally, I don't think so. I have an excellent male advisor. Um, I don't think so, but I don't have any, you know, I don't have any real evidence. But this, at the end of last year, this gave me the evidence that I was looking for. I think the way sometimes I look at it quite, uh, you know, basically is we, we need to remove tags. 
you know we yep. need to remove the, ch- the, the the tags that we all seem to be and whether you're left or right yeah, yeah people need good advice if you've got an advisor who listens to you works out can understand what your aims and aspirations that's all you're looking for yeah, but I, yeah, I think we we tend to get channeled into oh it must be this it must be that I don't you need that you just need good people to do a good job let's yeah, keep it basic job. yeah no no you're right you're absolutely spot on yeah. so what whilst people can still do a good job that leads me on to AI we got yeah, a couple of minutes yeah. left <laughs> so, no, what, what, love this talk yeah um, yeah I mean, so what's what's happening what's the mood music at the moment well, with with AI I think we're in a really interesting space with AI right so if we if we think back to um, a year ago at Christmas time, it was probably the first time most of us heard of Chat GPT, and we were all playing about with it, thinking, "Oh, this is amazing! I can ask it questions, and it will return a response instantly, and it's quite cool." And and I think where we are now is we're now in the year of how do I genuinely implement this in my business and leverage it? So can it drive efficiencies within my business? What what can it actually do for me? And, and I thought what was really interesting in the survey was the number of advisors that now see AI as an opportunity. So 70%, and we've seen a, quite a sharp increase in that compared to the previous survey. So advisors are sitting back thinking this technology is really interesting. I think it's an opportunity, but I think we're at the point of, but but how? what do I do next? I think probably the advice is get some, get some help, mm. you know, because uh, it's not our... For most of us, it's not our natural skill, is it, in terms of thinking through that. Um, we, we're we seeing some really interesting use cases. Uh, I saw some tech the other day that does a very simple review process with a client, particularly back to our conversation on those clients who are in early accumulation. They just need one conversation a year to check that nothing's changed. Um, so I've seen some really interesting technology that has, you know, with a chatbot, which feels very real, to be honest. Mm. Um, just working out whether or not the client has had any significant changes, um, being able to document that, or whether or not they now need to maybe speak to an, an advisor. Um, I'm hearing lots of interesting things happening in the actual advice process uh, in terms of you know suitability reports, how we prepare for review meetings, how we um, check client advisor data, sort of client data. I think obviously it comes with words of warnings, doesn't it? And mm. uh, suitability reports or straight into ChatGPT with client data is probably not a good idea. Um, so I, I think you know my where I'm seeing this working really well is where advisors are getting the right support from businesses who are also skilled in doing this and understand advice and the advice process. Yeah, there are lots of there's there's lots of startups out there, isn't there, in the AI space. But um, my advice would be to work with somebody who can demonstrate that they've already, you know, engaged with advisor businesses, understand some of this stuff, and can be, you know, really helpful in terms of leveraging efficiency. Which is when we ask advisors, what do you think AI could do for you, and that that's the key. That's the, the key response is about improving efficiency. What it's not about is about reducing jobs. I think what advisors, we a great advisor speaking about this at our conference recently, and he said, what we've been able to do is actually make people's jobs more interesting. You know, we've taken some of the heavy lifting away from them. We've re-engineered our processes. Uh, we're working very closely as well with compliance, as he said, mm, yeah. um, because that, you know, we are a regu- we are regulated businesses. Um, he said, but also we're making a difference to people's jobs. He said, this is not about, you know, cutting jobs. You know, and we saw horrible headlines in me last year about how AI is going to cut jobs. He said, it's not yeah. about that for my business. It's about delivering a better quality of service to clients. We've got more time to spend with them. And also the people that work with me don't spend hours and hours reading stuff that they just, you know, we can, we can manage very quickly and efficiently. So I think we're starting to see um, some really interesting things emerging here where advisors are are you know starting to implement it in their business I re- i'm really excited about this and what it can do for us yeah so i think the survey was saying the next two to five years is going yeah, to be that that that's where it's going to lift off yeah 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 and and here at sure is obviously we've got a significant amount of activity um in terms of how we can use ai to leverage efficiencies within our own business um we all have access to an internal version of um, open ai called genie and that's been great. You know, it's it's allowed however many thousand of us there are globally to to just 
test the, the technology and think about what are the use cases they, where we can design kind of processes or implement it to to make our jobs more interesting, spend time on you know, the other things. Um, we we had a we had a video the other day. Uh, Peter Harrison, our group CEO, and um, talking in I think it was six or seven different languages using a chatbot functionality. Yeah. It looks like him speaking, as he said himself, you know, I can only speak English. He doesn't speak any foreign languages. As a global business, so we can now have messages going directly from the group CEO in the language of that country. And and it did look amazing in terms of how that's being delivered. So um, I think there's some really interesting opportunities. However, um, I think advisors are so quite cautious as well, and, and quite rightly so, in terms of data and um, and in terms of I don't know how many people listening to this have ever used it but um, you know there are some downsides and we've got to be very careful for I check on things and uh, you know there was a great story in the press wasn't there last week about DPD and the I don't know if you read this about the guy who managed to break the break the chatbot eventually and that ended up telling him that they were the worst uh, delivery service ever and swearing which i thought was quite interesting so no there's still some yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's it was a bit of fun when you read it it wasn't really yeah. so much fun for dpd i think they <laughs> found the rogue uh whatever it was that was causing the chat what to misbehave so so we've we still got um you know i think we've got to apply a sense of caution around this however i think it i think it should release some massive opportunity particularly for me in terms of how can we Users to deliver more access to advice, but in a different way, and actually for a different generation. Yes. Any of us who've got, any of us who've got teenagers or young people in their twenties in the house will know that they think and act very differently to how we do, in terms absolutely. of interacting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that goes back to the wealth transfer in terms of you know yes. to innovate some products to use AI because that's how the genie's out the bottle. We're not going to go back. Absolutely, it's We're just going to go, go. No, so it's just going to be developed. So, but yeah. I think your advice to work with AI firms who understand financial planning is crucial because there are lots of startups. Yeah. They need to understand the intricacies of a business that is heavily regulated. Absolutely, um, it, it's it's different to running a call center. So yeah. um, there are a few firms out yeah. there that I've seen that do specialise in that but choose your provider yeah yeah ask for examples you know or ask for references you know case studies um and and i think the good ones will be able to do that absolutely um well thank you julian i think we've got about about 30 seconds left any final thoughts anything else that you wanted to tell the advisory community i know i think um i think we've run around a whole lot of topics but you know I, i think 2024 will still be challenging, but I just think it also brings lots of opportunities and, and particularly opportunities around demonstrating the value of advice to clients. So uh, I'll just leave with that one. Well said. Gillian Hepburn, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.